So Gary mentioned, you know, today we celebrate 14 years of God's faithfulness as, to us as a local church. Uh, our mission statement, our vision statement has remained the same. We exist to equip God's people to delight in His glory and to declare His glory to our neighbors and the nations. It's uh, pretty straightforward from the, from the overflow of our delight in God, we declare His glory to our neighbors and the nations. But what if I added this to the picture? In your equipping, in your delighting, in your declaring, uh, you will face obstacles like these. Unbelief, ridicule from religious people, threats, arrest for preaching, imprisonment, stoning, execution, people stirring up mobs against you, pagans misunderstanding your ministry, large riots, fear of death, sickness, demonic influences, slander, unjust governing authorities... Back alley plots against you, doctrinal confusion among Christians, self-righteousness in the church, people lying in the church, people complaining in the church, false converts in the church, leaders disagreeing over strategy, false teachers rising, poverty, hard goodbyes, hunger, loneliness, abandonment, strangers, storms, shipwreck, stranded, and just before you reach your destination, a snake will bite you. Who's with me, right? <laughs> Any hands? That list represents obstacles the church faces in the book of Acts. Whether due to fallen people or the fallen creation, the church faces many obstacles in the mission. Luke doesn't gloss the reality or the severity of the obstacles. But he has a purpose in them. And again and again, Luke reveals how God is sovereign over these obstacles. None are outside of his control. None will stop his purpose. Indeed, he even works through the obstacles to reveal his power and advance the gospel of his grace. And that will be no different in today's passage. Paul has to sail to Rome as a prisoner... In chapter 27, we saw last week, a storm pounds their ship off course. They wind up shipwrecked. They've they've just swam ashore on some strange island where they stay for three months. But none of it means that God's work is on hold. No, I want to focus on four ways God is working for, in, and through His servant, Paul. But let's read the passage first, beginning in verse one. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. 
And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Patioli. There we found brothers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so, we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. And seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. So, four ways God is at work here for, in, and through his servant Paul. First, notice how God cares for his servant. God cares for his servant. The circumstances aren't one we choose. I mean, who chooses cold, rainy days after a shipwreck on some strange island? And yet, through it all, the Lord provides his care for Paul in several ways. In verse 1, Luke is still amazed that they were brought safely through the storm and shipwreck. It's the second time he mentions it. Uh, The first was 27, verse 44. He's just amazed that God has delivered him. So that's one way God has cared for his servant. Notice also in verse 2 how the natives showed them unusual kindness. Unusual kindness. Now the word behind natives often gets translated elsewhere as barbarians. They're outsiders to Roman culture and language. And yet they show unusual kindness to these Romans. They, they kindle a fire. They welcome Paul. Their, their chief entertains them for several days. Uh, the whole group stays another three months. In verse 10, the natives honor them by giving them all that they need. Now, in light of Luke's larger story, how should we view this? Whatever his servants need for the mission, the Lord will provide. The Lord provides, even if that means using the kindness of pagans. In chapter 27, verse 3, it was the kindness of Julius, the centurion. And here it's the island people. There's precedent for this when Jesus sends out the 72 In Luke chapter 10, 
when he says, whenever you enter a town and, and they receive you, eat whatever is set before you. More than that, the Lord also cares for Paul through fellow Christ followers. Uh, we noted their care last week in Sidon, and this week we find their care in Patioli and in uh, Rome. Verse 14 says, There we found brothers, and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. Then verse 15, The brothers there in Rome, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So not only had he provided... His food in the mission, uh, the Lord also provided Paul with family. We found brothers, he says. And one of the primary ways God's cares for his servants is through the local church. We found brothers. It didn't matter if they had never met Paul before, the blood of Jesus united them. They were brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ. The Lord bound them together as family, and family cares for its members. So keep that in mind. It's not simply a matter of praying, Lord, help my brother over there. Lord, help my sister over there. It's Lord, help my brother, help my sister, and use me to help them. Use me to encourage them, to embrace them, to meet them in their need. And so we see the church doing here with Paul. God cares for his servants in the mission. He uses the kindness of pagans and he uses the the hospitality of of the church. That doesn't mean nothing terrible will happen to us in the mission. That doesn't mean everything will be comfortable and pain free. That doesn't mean our plans will always work out in the way we think they should. But it does mean that for whatever number of days the Lord gives you, for whatever relationship the Lord sets before you, for whatever suffering you face in the path of obedience, God gives His servants everything they need. God cares for His servants. And the Lord will care for you. As Jesus teaches us, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This is Matthew 6, verses 25 to 30. Or Philippians 4.19, consider the, the assurance Paul himself gives the Philippian church while he's in jail, my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God cares for His servants, and we see that playing out here in Paul's mission. Second, notice how God authenticates His servant. God authenticates His servant. And He does this through a few signs and wonders. One could be this viper fastening to Paul's hand, and he walks away unscathed. 
We'll talk more about their response in a second. But the situation says there's something unique about Paul. Uh, It seems that he's bitten. But even if the viper just wrapped around his hand, the Lord uses the situation to distinguish Paul. What's more clear are the healings that he performs. Uh, In verse 8, Paul heals Publius' father who was sick with fever and dysentery. Uh, Notice that Paul prayed. It says Paul prayed and put his hands on him. In other words, Paul himself didn't possess the, the, the power to heal. The risen Lord Jesus healed the man using Paul. And then in verse 9, we see Jesus healing others through Paul as well. Those who had diseases, they came and they were cured. Now these signs here function no differently than the rest of the signs in the book of Acts. Uh, God uses them to authenticate his servants as they preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. The same happened with Jesus in the gospels. And Luke himself talks about it and highlights it in Acts chapter 2 verse 22. When he says that God attested to you. I mean a, a man, Jesus is a man attested to you by God. With mighty works and signs and wonders. And so... The miracles in Jesus' ministry had this authentication, this, this attesting uh, uh, ministry to point out that people could not deny God's hand was on Jesus. And likewise, people shouldn't deny that God's hand was on Paul. Or better, that the risen Lord Jesus was now performing the same miracles that he had when he was in his earthly ministry. He was doing those same miracles through Paul, through his messengers and acts. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So let's not reduce things too far. Christ-like endurance was part of the authentication picture in the apostles' ministry. But signs and wonders were also used to mark Paul and the other messengers and the others as messengers of God's kingdoms. And that's what a point we need to remember here. Uh, Luke assumes that we're familiar enough with the framework in which he's operating that some things go without saying. Paul's there for three months. And if you, you know the pattern of Paul, it's not like he wasn't sharing the gospel of the kingdom, though Luke doesn't mention it here. He's kind of giving you little snippets of what's happening. And the assumption is, though, he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom while he's performing these, these miracles, it was never about the bare signs themselves. Signs were accompanied by the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom sets the framework for understanding the signs. For instance, these healings were the fruit of Jesus' death and resurrection. By atoning for sin, Jesus secures our total liberation from death and disease. We learned this a while back. Uh, from Jesus' own words uh, in Matthew 8 when he cites, uh, when he pick it up from Isaiah 53, verse 4. True healing is possible only when God deals with sin. Now, we don't experience the fullness of that liberation yet. I need to repeat that. We do not experience the fullness of that liberation yet. But one day we will... The healings become 
These miraculous healings become little temporary manifestations of God's kingdom breaking into the present. They're little glimpses of what Jesus' kingdom brings. Holistic liberation. They were testimonies to Jesus being the one who is powerful to transform the present evil age into a new age that is free from all brokenness and death. And so when that's going on, it's pointing, they get to point to Jesus and say, you believe in him. He's the one who's bringing the change. He's the one that's bringing the new creation. So these temporary signs gave concrete expression to the message of the kingdom that the, the apostles were preaching. The sign said, yeah, this is Jesus' man and the message he's preaching about the kingdom is real. And it is powerful. When the signs were understood properly, in light of the king and his kingdom, they should lead people to repent and place their faith in Jesus. Now, God may still choose to authenticate his messengers this way, especially when the gospel penetrates new places. That's the pattern we see in the book of Acts, as the gospel's penetrating new places. It happens... Still, I mean, we hear missionary stories of how the signs confirm the messenger still today. But once the gospel takes root, God's primary means, not his only means, but his primary means of authenticating the gospel message is the local church. God displays his reign and his power through his people, when his people love and when his people serve and when his people sacrifice and they give and they forgive and they use their gifts to build one another up and they treasure the gospel in the power of God's spirit. You know what happens? Outsiders come in and get around us and they say, surely God is in your midst. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 14. Might God use miraculous signs to authenticate his word still? Absolutely. At the same time, we, sh- we just shouldn't overlook his primary means for the exceptional means. Regardless, though, I'd encourage you to think about this. Should we not pray for God's power to authenticate the gospel in our lives? Period. Whether he does it through the primary, ordinary means, or exceptional, miraculous means, shouldn't we be praying and on our knees and longing for God to work mightily in our midst and powerfully to authenticate the message we're proclaiming to other people? Should we not pray like the apostles in Acts 4? Grant to your servants... To continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Shouldn't we pray for him to do far more abundantly than anything we can ask or think? Ephesians chapter 3. Shouldn't we pray for God's spirit to, to so empower our actions and shape our attitudes that our lives authenticate the message we preach. That is, that it gives further confirmation that the gospel is real and the gospel is powerful to save and to set people free from their sins. I should want that more than I do. 
Do you want that? For this church. Don't just think for the church at large in the world. Yeah, we want that. But for this church, do you want that? So that wherever we go, wherever we work, wherever we study, wherever we eat, wherever we live, the people around us see God's power at work in our lives confirming the message we're giving them. We might say, yeah, but you don't understand what we're dealing with right now. As a family in our marriage. You don't get how hard it is for me. At work. You don't know how dull people's hearts can be. Or how weak their investment is in the mission. Or what costs we might incur. You don't know what obstacles face us in reaching that community for Christ. Or planting that church. You don't know. And you're right. I don't know the full extent of any of those things. But I do see here a God whose power is not determined or limited by any of those circumstances. And who loves doing the impossible so that He gets the glory and you get the joy. As William Carey once said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Pray for God to work mightily through this church and through your own ministries as you go out each week. A third way we see God working for, in, and through Paul. God keeps his word to his servant. Uh, Turn back with me to chapter 23, verse 11. Actually, let's go back a little further. Let's go 19. 1921. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So we see the Holy Spirit... Let's Paul know his journey, and it's going to end in Rome. I must also see Rome. Now go to chapter 23, verse 11, two years later. The following night, it says, The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now, chapter 28, verse 14 and 15. And so we came to Rome. End of verse 15. Paul thanked God and he, what? Took courage. You see it? Jesus says, take courage. For as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. He gets to Rome, Paul thanks God, and he takes courage. God keeps his word to his servant. The Holy Spirit said it four years earlier. Jesus reminded reminded him of it two years later. And now we see here the fulfillment 
of it. Now, we spent some time on this uh, very thing last week. God's, God's faithfulness to keep His word to Paul was further grounds for us to trust that God will keep His word to us. And we can take God's promises to the bank because God is trustworthy. I want to expand on that just a minute here. Notice that God never fails to keep His word even when the fulfillment seems to come rather slowly. Seems to come rather slowly. Like I said, four years earlier is when he first gets the confirmation from the Spirit that he's supposed to go. Four years. And they have not been comfortable years either. They've been racked with rejection and with pain and with sorrows and with uncertainty and with unexpected inter- like interruptions, what we would call interruptions. They're not interruptions of God. But what we would call interruptions with shipwreck, and now he's stranded another three months. And then finally, the promise is fulfilled. How many occasions during that four years would you lead you to doubt God's word? Our lives are racked with numerous obstacles that can make us feel like God's promises won't come through. Like God has just forgotten His Word to us. Some of you may have even grown rather jaded with the Lord about His slowness. You've you've stopped reading His Word. You've stopped praying. You've stopped hoping at all. You may be right in the middle of, of a chaotic, confusing season of life and you're questioning whether God will come through on His Word To make all things new. To rightly order this world under His authority. To rightly order your marriage under His authority. Maybe you look at the church and you see divisions and controversy and people not investing in each other and you're questioning whether God's going to come through on His Word to build His church and not let the gates of Hades prevail. Maybe you look at the slowness of your own sanctification. That's where most of my doubts come in. You look at the slowness of your own sanctification, and that alone causes you to question whether God will come through on His Word to purify you and set you before His Son blameless on the day of Christ. Maybe you see your wife dying of cancer, and you wonder some days whether God will come through on His Word to provide all that you need in the days ahead. Maybe you see the injustice swallowing the world and slaughtering the innocent, corrupt leaders prospering, and you wonder whether God will come through on His Word to judge the evildoer and right all wrongs. True stories like this one here in Acts, remind us that God is true to His Word. That He doesn't lie. That He's not slow about His promises as some count slowness, but is faithful toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God has reasons, good, wise, perfect, loving reasons why His promises get fulfilled when they do 
and in the way that they do. But this we can rest assured of. God keeps his word to his servants. And not just part of his word, right? He didn't just keep part of his word to... He didn't just keep his word to Paul that he would get shipwrecked on the island and that all of the people would be spared on the ship. He also kept his word that he got to Rome. And we'll keep going next week. He testifies to Jesus in Rome. He keeps all of his promises, all of his word, not just part of his word. So trust him, beloved. Let let this story replant your feet on the rock of God's trustworthiness. What he assured us about here in his word, he will do it. Lastly, God reaches the nations through his servant. God reaches the nations through his servant. The nations must be reached for Christ. These island people are kind, apparently pretty generous too, but they're still lost and without hope. Notice what they make of the situation with Paul and the viper. This creature is dangling from Paul's arm and they conclude, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Think about that. They're dead wrong about Paul. We know he's innocent. They're also dead wrong to suggest that suffering necessarily means divine retribution. That's not true. You can look at Job. You can look at the man born blind. Elsewhere in the the Bible. And we know that's not true. They're wrong to suggest that suffering necessarily means divine retribution. But they do seem aware of what's morally right and wrong. Murder is wrong. And they even see it deserves divine punishment. Punishment of some kind by a divine being. It's likely that they have a particular God in mind. That's why the ESV capitalizes the word justice. You know, she didn't didn't get him at the sea, but ah, she's going to get him on the land. This goddess of justice is, is how they're thinking. Doesn't their reaction confirm what we read in Romans 2? That the work of the law is written on people's hearts? Their conscience even bearing witness of what's right and wrong? And their their second response confirms what we read in Romans 1. Paul shakes off the critter. He's fine. Nothing happens to him. What do they say? Oh, he must be a god. He's gone from a murderer to a god. What does Romans 1 tell us? They exchange the truth about God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1 and 2 explain that everybody outside of Christ is just like this. That everybody knows there's a God who will hold the world accountable for what's right and wrong, but they get him dead wrong, don't they? And they end up worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. 
That's a universal problem of humanity. And we see it with Paul meeting, running into these fellows on, on the island. And Romans 1 also tells us that the consequence is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness such as this. The nations need to be saved from their ignorance just like we needed to be saved from our ignorance. The nations need to hear of the one true God just like we needed to hear of the one true God. The nations need to hear that God offered up His only Son to reconcile sinners to Himself, just like we needed to hear that message. The nations need to hear that He raised His Son to put the world to rights and bring His people into a new creation, just like we needed to hear that message. And so Paul says in Romans 1.14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and, get this, to barbarians. Two barbarians, the same people he's, we're, we're talking about in Acts 28. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Under obligation to do what? Preach the gospel. That's what God is doing here. He may be shipwrecked on an island, but Paul has three months to give them the gospel. And while that gospel is being confirmed with signs... And wonders, God is at work. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To embrace the gospel is to escape our desperate plight under the wrath of God and gain a right standing before God. And if we have experienced that deliverance ourselves, we can't be anything except debtors to those for whom Christ died. Just because things aren't going the way that you've planned doesn't mean God's work through you is somehow delayed. Right? Some of us get the impression that if, if things haven't gone according to plan in my life, God's work is just on hold. What am I supposed to do now? My plans didn't work out. My boss is like this. My marriage is like this. Guess I'll just have to wait till all this is over to actually get my ministry going again. Baloney. Paul has been locked up for two years. He just spent a half month stranded at sea, three months on an island. And what do we see? Every step of the way is an opportunity to live for Christ. Where he's at, in the circumstances he's given. And that's the same is true for us. Wherever we are, whatever we're facing, whatever circumstances we're in, to live is Christ. And that brings us full circle, doesn't it? Back to our mission statement. We exist to equip God's people to delight in His glory and to declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. In whatever circumstances you find yourself, look for opportunities to make Christ known. The spread of the gospel isn't limited by the obstacles we face. The obstacles just become another context in which to announce the worth and the power and the glory and the love of our God in Christ. Before announcing it to others, though, why don't we spend some time enjoying announcing it to one another as we take the Lord's Supper?
This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.